Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Numa. I am now and forever your devoted friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so much for joining me. Immeasurable, almost inexpressible is the gratitude I feel for having been honored with your attention and your companionship. I'm acutely aware of the fact that there are countless other people and channels to whom you could be listening right now. That you opted to join me and spend some time together is not something I take lightly. So again, I thank you. I welcome you to join our growing community by subscribing to this channel and sharing your favorite episode with a family member and a friend. In a recent episode, on which, I'm delighted to say, I received a lot of thoughtful feedback. We undertook a meditation on what I called life's biggest question. That's right, life's biggest question, a theme on which I admit unblushingly I have neither the wisdom nor the qualification to opine. Indeed, that question, with all its existential heaviness, is better suited to theologians, priests, rabbis, and philosophers. Deeply read men and women by whom the burden of its weight can be more deftly handled and easily borne. Yet, for some reason or another, I was pulled in by its gravity and I couldn't resist exploring it. And what was that question? None other than the immortal line with which Shakespeare's greatest character, Hamlet, 
begins the third act of his eponymous tragedy. To be or not to be. That, Hamlet asserts, is the question. It is the question before which all other questions shrink and fall silent. It is the question in comparison to which all other questions are made in a flash to seem trivial and small. To be, as Hamlet explains, is to live. That much is true. But not to live in the blithe, carefree, happy and hedonistic way that we might imagine. To be is not to live a life of psychological ease and material comfort. It is not to be immune to pain and unburdened by stress. To be, rather, is to live a life of hardship, of suffering. It's to live a life upon which, from every direction, the forces of anxiety, pain, and heartache are relentlessly impinging. A bleak prospect, to be sure. And yet, there is an alternative, not to be. As you might have guessed, not to be is not to live. It's to extinguish once and for all the flame of life. It's to enter the realm of perpetual darkness. It means no longer to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, no longer to bear the whips and scorns of time, no longer to endure the oppressor's wrong and law's delay. If the tension between these two choices intrigues you, and if you'd like to explore Hamlet's thinking on the matter more deeply, I encourage you to visit our earlier episode 
of which this soliloquy stands at the center. I'll include a link to it in the show notes below. For today's episode, we're going to shift our attention a few decades forward in time to Shakespeare's countrymen and younger contemporary John Milton. You needn't do anything but breathe and listen. With the notable exception of Shakespeare himself, there is, I think, no other writer who's done more to enlarge the scope of our dramatic consciousness, color our lurid visions of evil, enkindle our burning desire for good, stimulate our appetite for cosmic and moral epics, nor refine our literary sense than John Milton. Milton about whom I could go on and on for hours, was, by any measure, an extraordinary person. He was a poetic wunderkind, one of those rare boy geniuses upon whom, impatient for his maturation, heaven was quick to bestow all her gifts. His literary career began when he was just a boy, with his publications of Lycidas and On the Morning of Christ's Nativity. It progressed to brilliant and convincing tracts on subjects ranging from free speech to marriage and political reform. In addition to the dazzling literary achievements with which his young adulthood was crowned, Milton was raised to a position of a high political office during the English Civil Wars of the 1640s. He was a Puritan and a parliamentarian, and thus supportive of Oliver Cromwell the military commander by whom King Charles I was vanquished and replaced. Sadly, with the end of the interregnum, Milton's fortunes changed. No sooner had Cromwell died than another Stuart king was restored to the throne. This time, it would be Charles II, a man with whom Milton, a 
vocal critic of the regime and its crypto-Catholic leadership, was openly on unfriendly terms. Milton was, post-haste, exiled by King Charles II. He fled the halls of power, retired to his country estate, went blind and dictated to his daughters, acting as his unpaid amanuenses, an epic surpassed only by the works of Homer and Virgil. He called it Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost is, in brief, the story of Satan's rebellion against God, his consequent expulsion from heaven, his ambition to reclaim his lost grandeur, and his temptation of and ultimate victory over man, whom he enticed to sin. I'm at no risk of overstating the case when I proclaim, without hesitation, that Paradise Lost is one of the most powerful stories ever told. As such, here on Numa, we'll return to it again and again in order to explore its themes, ponder its questions, and enrich ourselves by its morality and its undiminished beauty. On this occasion, we're going to talk about Belial, an accomplice to Satan who has something important to say in response to Hamlet's bedeviling question to be or not to be. Belial, to whom the New Testament makes reference only once, is a charming, eloquent, but horribly evil actor who appears more frequently in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. While in heaven, he was considered one of the fairest angels whose tongue dropped manna. That's to say, he was extremely handsome and well-spoken. Not unlike the host to whom you're listening. 
in Milton's world, from which no creature is too foul to be excluded. Belial is the lowest ranking of the primary devils, akin to the sixth player on a basketball team who comes off the bench and into the game. Satan, chief among the fallen angels, has convened his varsity squad, his upper brass of demons, if you will, with whom he'll consult in an infernal council. Think of it as an assembly of the most depraved sinners that the cosmos has ever known. The question at hand is whether or not they should, from their low position in hell, gird themselves, renew their fight and continue waging unholy war against God in heaven. The floor is open to the devils, who advance their arguments for or against the proposed continuation of hostilities. Belial, chastened by his comrades' recent defeat and their subsequent fall from grace, opposes carrying on the bold insurrection against God. After listing the practical reasons why waging further war against God would be not only futile, but painful, he predicts the unhappy outcome should they choose to carry on with the insurrection. He says, thus repulsed by God, our final hope is flat despair. We must exasperate the almighty victor to spend all his rage. And that must end us. That must be our cure. To be no more. Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard that before? To be no more. Here at last, we arrive at the devil's response to Hamlet's question. To be or not to be. Should we persist in living an arduous, difficult life? Or should we, rather, 
court death and invite its end. Belial's answer might surprise you with unrivaled eloquence and genuine feeling. He stands up before his fellow devils and says, To be no more. Sad cure. For who would lose, though full of pain, this intellectual being, those thoughts that wander through eternity, to perish, rather, swallowed up and lost in the wide womb of uncreated night, devoid of sense and motion. Wow. Belial is categorically on the pro-life side of the debate. Despite its unremitting sadness and heavy misery. He still values life. To die, to be no more, in his opinion, is really no remedy at all. I suppose it's a cure in a certain sense. But it's far worse than the affliction to which it's called upon to offer relief. This intellectual being is his personhood. It's his essence as a rational being. We share this essence. We too are intellectual beings, no less susceptible to sin. It's by this feature that we distinguish ourselves from the beasts. We have the faculty to reason, to take in and describe the beauty of a sunset, to create and listen to sublime music, to seek truth and wisdom, to love and be loved, to weigh the value of life and death. Belial doesn't deny that this life of ours, this life as an intellectual being, is a hard one. Nothing could be further from his message. It is hard, very hard, in fact, and made all the harder now that he's in hell. Never once does he overlook this fact. Nevertheless, 
pain and hardship are worth enduring if it means you're able to live and think and hope and love. Despite all the trouble, it is better to choose life. It is better, ultimately, to be. How unlikely a response to Shakespeare's question. And with what optimism is it proclaimed? With what life-affirming hope and enthusiasm coming from one reduced to the lowest pit of hell? And yet, with hope for something still better in the future. Belial concludes his speech as follows. Our supreme foe, God, in time may much remit his anger, and perhaps, thus far removed, not mind us not offending, satisfied with what is punished. Whence these raging fires will slacken, if his breath stir not their flames, our purer essence then will overcome their noxious vapor, or, inured, not feel, or, changed at length, and to the place conformed in temper and in nature, will receive familiar the fierce heat, and, void of pain, this horror will grow mild, this darkness light. Even in the hopeful musings of a hell-bound devil, the mercy of the divine is still possible. I think it's no less possible for us. On that note, I think we'd better end. In Belial, a devil tossed out of heaven and into the abyss of hell, we have our answer to Hamlet's question. To be, to live, life is, irrespective of your station, worth it. Let us choose it freely, and let us live it in the now. Thank you again for joining me on this meditation. 
I'm curious to know what you thought about it. Comment below. Do you find Belial's response convincing? Do you think we should listen to him? Imagine his conversation with Hamlet after the Prince of Denmark dies and moves on to the undiscovered country. What would Hamlet say in response to Belial? Can we learn something from a devil? Let me know what you think. You can always email me directly at numa.finnerin at gmail.com. As always, be sure to like this episode and share it with a family member and a close friend. This is Daniel Finnerin signing off. Fare thee well. From Numa. <laughs>